Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It is me, Steve Hall, and today I am joined by Mike Isratel, and we are going to be doing a lovely Q&A for you all. Um, just because someone asked uh, where people can submit questions, it is over in our Revive Stronger Facebook group, which is free. Uh, you just have to op- answer some questions so we know you're not an incel, as Mike would say, um, and you are a real <laughs> legit person, uh, and that will be really helpful. So, uh, Actually, Mike, if we start off with, because we had kind of an interesting chat off air, where are you right now in terms of like massing? What's what's kind of going down on your end? Yeah, I'm in a few months into massing. I weigh 250 pounds and I'm going to be mini cutting shortly and then massing again. Um, the, the most lean 250 I've ever been, which means I'm the most muscular. Um, my lifts are going super well. Actually, yesterday... I lateral raised, or two, day, two days ago, I lateral raised the 50-pound dumbbells for a set of 12, uh, not just one set. I did many sets after that of other reps, um, you know, with a slight pause at the top, uh, which for me is just nonsensical. Like, I don't even, I, I pick up the 50s and I'm like, what the hell am I doing with these things? Like, I used to lateral raise the 20s and that was challenging when I first started doing lateral raises. And then when I recycled back to pause lateral raises at the top, which are a lot harder, I recycled all the way down to the twenties and the 25s. Um, and now I'm at the fifties for the similar number of reps and a lot of that's motor learning, but my shoulders just look kind of really dumb and it's, it's really cool. Um, and my training is really synced in. I've got it worked out pretty well. Um, I'm, I'm back to, um, so I, I'm pretty well through my higher frequency experiment, which is three sessions a week. Mm-hmm. Um, for all muscle groups. And I, I did that just because I wanted to learn more about how that would work. Um, what I realized was that uh, the argument that some muscles should be trained more frequently than others is a pretty good one. Um, and and put another way to put it is, if you want to train all of your muscle groups at the same frequency, like both side delts and hamstrings, um, you would have to so contort and modify some of the training for side delts or hamstrings that you end up getting into a situation in which either you are training side delts above that 10 to 12 sets per session range in order to get in as many much volume as you can, which is suboptimal, or you end up doing something like doing two sets of hamstrings per workout four times a week, which is like um, theoretically not terribly disadvantageous and has some plus sides. Unfortunately, from a connective tissue perspective, it doesn't seem sustainable. But what also doesn't seem is that it's just um, really inefficient as far as warm-ups and stuff are concerned. You know, like if you have to train every muscle in your body once a day for five or six days, to me, the warm-ups are just like half the workout or something at that point. Um, I really like to, you know, take the time to zone in on a single muscle with something like three to ten sets. And once it's warmed up, the training feels for a lot better. And so I really like that middle ground of per session training volume. Uh, and it, if you want that good middle ground, you're just probably going to have to train your hamstrings and quads and glutes like two or three times a week. And then your side delts, biceps, et cetera, depending on how your faster muscles heal, they may be good to go you know, three, four, five times a week sometimes. And your chest and back fall somewhere between the two in most cases. So I'm, I'm, I, I was doing a, a all muscles three times a week, but I'm not doing that anymore. I'm actually just this past week started a, a program where I'm right, I'm doing essentially two, only two leg workouts per week. Um, and I'm doing uh, sort of a two hard back workouts a week and one back workout that's just a little bit of focus on a specific area. Same thing for chest and triceps, sort of 2.5 workouts. 
And then for biceps and, and shoulders, I'm doing essentially four workouts a week, um, one way or another. Um, and it works out. It just immediately clicks so well. And that's not the optimality. There's going to be times for, for a short term when I'm really pushing the end of my cutting phase or the top of my massing phase that I go to three times a week for even the muscles that don't heal very fast. But that's for short-term overreaching. I've tried the three-time-a-week enough times now. I've done it in, I think, four mesocycles total that uh, it is not a very sustainable way to train with the kinds of volumes that bring the best results. So uh, that's an interesting revelation. It's, it's something I predicted theoretically would happen anyway, but it's good to test the very upper limits of frequency to see how things start to become a little bit interesting. And I guess that for short-term overreaching is that a mesocycle overreach in terms of yeah so because you know the beginning of the mesocycle the volumes are pretty low you're not really overreaching um, no. once you get into moderate volumes and higher volumes that really is uh quite a bit in excess of i would say that's a connective tissue overreach like your muscles actually recover pretty well if you dose the volumes accordingly but the connective tissues just seem to lag and that's one of the things that uh, higher level bodybuilders say when they talk about why their routines are almost ubiquitous which I don't support, but I think there's all other bad reasons they do low volume, but one of the good reasons is they say is that high frequency just absolutely destroys your joints um, and connective tissues, and I can absolutely sympathize with that. I don't think it destroys them. Just chip away at them a little bit more um, than perhaps a lower frequency would, um, because in essence, if you do a higher frequency, you can now recover your muscles recover and then you train your muscles recover and you train. It's not your muscles plus connective tissues recover and then you train, which is what low frequency is for a high frequency routine. One of the benefits is that you can do more volume because heal and do it, heal and do it and heal and do it. You stack more volume into a week. And I think that volume essentially for lack of a better term is within your muscular MRV, but not within your connective tissue MRV. And it's maybe just a little bit over connective tissue MRV only at certain times in the cycle. So it's not always bad, but it does accumulate over several mesocycles. And if someone told me that I had to train hard with four sessions a week of every muscle group, I would say that's sustainable. You know, on a lot of special sports supplements for somebody my size uh, for only like a mesocycle. And then I would just fall into pieces. Uh, and there was a time just recently when I was doing a three time a week for everything. And I was almost in pieces. Like I was like, you know, I'd get to a workout and I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do today because everything's fucked up. <laughs> like, I, I, and, and then it's not just that. It's like, if I survive this workout, I have the same muscle groups in two days again. Oh my yeah. God. At some point, you know, and, and there's even um, some discordance with per session volume. Like if I'm going to be squatting, I'm putting, you know, 400 or whatever pounds on the bar. It doesn't so much matter if I'm doing it for 10 sets or if I'm doing it for five, because someone could say like, well, stop doing it for 10 sets and just do it for five and you'll recover. Like any stress with that heavy of a weight at some point starts to add up in such a way that it's not sustainable. You just need time, just more time. And sometimes the higher frequency programs don't give you enough time to, to recover in the long term. Is that some of the kind of you felt maybe some joint pain or some like niggles building up or how did you Absolutely. kind of, yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, the pec tendon area just would never heal. Yeah. And it would get progressively worse. Um, distal triceps would never heal from pulling workouts and then get hit again during uh, tricep workouts. There's, there's no end to this. Uh, it's such an endless, uh, endless strain on connective tissues. Knees, my knees for the first time in ever started to feel a little wonky. Because um, I would do squats on one day, and then I would do leg presses and squats on another, and then I would do lunges on another. By the time I got to lunges, I'm like, oh my god, my knees do not feel well. 
with twice a week training, my knees feel fine. I never, never had a problem. But with three times a week, at first they were okay, but over the months and months, just that little impartial recovery starts to add up. Yeah. Um, and even with deloads, some of it just never goes away. So was... And you said you're 250, but you've what's the heaviest you weighed, Mike? You haven't weighed over 300 before, have you? No, I've weighed 270 before. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's pretty. That's very, very fat. <laughs> Do you think you'll ever, what's the heavy, do you think you'll get ever, I guess, is 300 even in your scope or is that too? No, no, that would require a significant health trade-off. It would actually make me really fat uh, in such a way that does not justify in my my career, the muscle gain. I'll probably never get heavier than 260 ever again. Um, Okay. Even 260 would surprise me and it would be very, very short term. What I'm really trying to do is stay around 250 and go a little under, a little over slowly build some muscle over this next year. And then towards the end of the year, when I start to get lean for competing, you know, holding a, a very well-conditioned 250 is a good place to start. Um, and then maybe if I can step on stage sort of just under 225, I mean, that'll be a peak muscularity for the heavyweight class, which is yep. a cool, cool thing to be able to be not out-muscled by anyone in your class is a real good start. Awesome. And actually that leads on to some of the first questions that we get got that came through uh, were kind of contest prep related. And the first one from Andrew uh, Potacek, uh, he asked, how much cardio is too much in prep? And where is the point of which you might cut food instead of adding cardio or kind of how do you go about kind of juggling that? Yeah. So it depends on what you mean by cardio. I assume we're not, we don't mean meat. Um, you know, non-planned physical activity, just walking around, you can do a lot of that and it never gets to be too much. Um, but what I would say is you can do up to as much cardio as starts to interfere with your leg workouts. If there's a notable interference with your leg workouts during the week, it's probably a good idea to eat a little bit less food and do a little bit less cardio or just keep the cardio the same. Uh, what I will say, this is something echoing something Broderick Chavez says often, cardio should not be a huge part of your contest prep strategy, especially formal get on the treadmill and walk around or do step mill cardio. Your diet can control a lot of that. Meat can control a lot of that. And uh, time can control a lot of that. A lot of the people that are doing it, I've been one of these people who have done, I've done uh, some total of an hour and a half to two hours of cardio per day every day for some time. Um, And that was just because I was very behind schedule and trying to get lean on a certain date. So when some people say like, I need a ton of cardio to get in shape, you know, or you need four more weeks. Um, And I I usually tend to think nowadays, especially that I've tried it so much, rushing, getting into shape is a very bad idea, specifically because it throws off your body's hormonal axes so much that you start to hold a ton of water. You don't even know if you're on your way to being in shape. Um, your metabolism starts to get uh, really, really degraded, so on and so forth. Um, psychology goes out the window. Cravings go crazy. Fatigue goes crazy. Injury risk goes crazy. It's uh, not one of these things you seem to be able to rush without paying a big price. Um, and easing the body into the lower body fats, I think, is a better idea. Um, so for how much cardio is too much, until uh, unless it starts to really affect your leg workouts, it's a real good start. So you look at your performance of your leg workouts, and if you can, and there's also a, a, a thing where you can actually feel, this is some interesting subjective advice, but I think it's valuable. If after a cardio session, you feel your legs weak and depleted, and that feeling draws into your next leg workout two days later or a day later or something, you got a problem, because now you're essentially training for endurance athletics. 
and it will cost you muscle size. People cardio their legs off all the time into a bodybuilding show. It happens quite regularly. So um, anything more than that would just be ridiculous. So I would say after that, you know, reach that point, step back a bit until your cardio feels okay again, and uh, then just reduce food. Uh, but even that's not the best advice. Just take more time. Uh, the, the one thing that I will say is, uh, I wouldn't say baffling to me, it's understandable, but it's nonetheless something that is probably worth addressing. Um, folks will say they're not losing fat or weight. And uh, I've learned a sort of uh, to channel the spirit of Thomas Sowell here and ask the next question without assuming that what the person is saying is literally correct. Um, and I'm sure you've done this with a bunch of clients over the years. So, so I, I like, for example, someone uh, asked me about this about massing. They'll say, Mike, I'm eating a ton of food and I'm not gaining weight. They'll say, okay, how much weight have you gained in the last month? And they say, well, like four pounds. And I'm like, so you're getting a pound a week. They're like, well, yeah. I'm like, that's gaining weight. And they're like, yeah, but I'm eating so much, I should be getting more. And I'm like, well, that may, may be true as far as it goes, but to quote Thomas so again, it doesn't go far enough. What you should be sweeting that logic string is to say, yeah, I should be gaining more, but I'm still gaining a pound a week, and that's way more than enough, so just who cares? Uh, same thing with dieting. A lot of times folks will be like, man, I, I need to up my cardio. I'm not losing weight fast enough. It's like, how fast are you losing weight? So I'm losing weight at a pound a week. I'm like, how fast do you want to go? <laughs> um, and there's a, an unsustainably fast speed that you could rush yourself into if you're really trying to burn out. That's really stupid. So... A lot of times when people say, you know, I need to add cardio, you know, the last week they were, uh, you know, 101 kilos. This week they were, you know, 100.2 kilos. And they're like, oh, no, 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 I should have been 100. It's like, really, should you really have? Like, if that's your goal is to lose exactly a kilo a week, yeah, you need to increase cardio or whatever. But goals like lose a kilo a week are usually uh, arranged not with contest prep, not with doing a ton of cardio and eating very little food, but usually with like, you know, I want to lose five kilos or seven kilos in 12 weeks or whatever to get in shape for going on holiday or something. Like, yeah, but then you can do the increased cardio thing, the decreased food thing, because it's such a short-term thing. It doesn't, it's not going to really impact you that much. But if you're really getting very, very lean, you have to understand that at the very tail end of that, the weight's going to drop very, very slowly. Um, Eric Helms has said this recently after his last competitive season, where people have asked him, like, how much weight have you lost in the last month? And he's like, honestly, I think I, think I gained a pound, but mostly glycogen of body water, and I got just a little bit leaner. And they'll say things like, well, why don't you just lose more weight? He's like, because I'm going to be stringed out and lose a shitload of muscle and get super fucking weak. And that'll be that. Like, they got a 3.5% body fat. How much weight do you think I'm going to be losing to get to 2.9% fat? I mean, it's, it's almost an undetectable amount of weight on the scale. So at some point, you know, when you have that idea, I'm just going to drive this fat loss. Be easy on the driving because at some point, fat loss just doesn't happen faster than a certain rate until and unless it starts to cost you. And in terms of uh, cardio modalities, what's your kind of preferences when, I don't know, for fat loss just generally and if there's anything specific for contest prep? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, uh, I, so we could approach this question theoretically. What is theoretically the best kind of cardio? Well, theoretically, the best kind of cardio is a simple elevation of all of your body's uh, metabolic rates, um, all of the cells, or actually ideally just the fat cells, right? Uh, and so there's no way to target just uh, fat cells of your body, although I'm sure they're working on drugs to do that. Uh, a close approximation to that is to consume uh, uh, caffeine or thyroid hormone or um, DNP, uh, the latter of which can kill you, of course, and so can thyroid hormone. Um, I guess so can caffeine if you get really stupid. But uh, 
So, you know, these substances raise essentially the metabolic rate of every cell in your body. And because every cell spreads out the fatigue, there's a very little chance for muscle loss because the muscles are barely working any harder and they're, they're not being sapped of their energy or of their, you know, protein. And then uh, on the, so, so that's sort of the ideal, but then you say, okay, that's off the table. What about just how do I do that uh, average energy raising spread throughout my body in a way that doesn't involve chemical intervention? And the average is just be more active throughout the day, moving around, picking things up, putting them down, working with clients, so on and so forth, walking here, walking there. And all of a sudden you spread a ton of that metabolic uh, cost through, first of all, most of your body's musculature and, and body fat, et cetera. And second of all, uh, you spread it through time so that uh, the, the peak intensity never gets very high, which is another way to say your faster muscle fibers never turn on during that time. Like NEAT is almost the exclusive use of slower fibers. Slower fibers don't grow much to begin with, and the very slowest fibers are very small, and they just don't make a big difference in your physique. If you use your very slowest fibers to uh, burn tons of calories, you're essentially taking them and turning them into fat-burning machines with really no big downside because they don't need them for anything else anyway. They're fucking useless on stage because nobody can tell you you can have them. Uh, the bad idea on the other end of the spectrum is to take your fastest muscle fibers to use them as cardio machines to deplete them of the resources to cause catabolic stress on them and also to do this uh, with as much dynamic activity, impact, and shock as possible. So the worst cardio possible would be frog jumps, like uh, in a row, or plyo push-ups. Like, can you imagine doing a cardio frog jump? You would just rub all of your joints right off your body like with a fucking eraser, and that would be that. So it's high fatigue, super high demand, super competes with the muscles that you're trying to train in the gym. So anything, there's a spectrum from all the way there, all the way back down to neat, the next best thing after need is like getting on the elliptical for 120 beats per minute cardio because it spreads upper and lower body. Uh, incline walking is fine. Uh, I start to be, be incrementally more skeptical of anything more targeted towards local musculature and more uh, concentrated in calories burned per unit time because that requires faster twitch fiber activation. So I'm not a big fan of cycling. I think it just fries your quads a lot. Um, mm. Anyone who cycled for 45 minutes at a relatively decent intensity uh, especially to burn a lot of calories because it's just your legs working and it's not even weight bearing. You can cycle pretty fucking hard to burn a lot of calories and that just zonks your quads. It really just does. Um, and, and uh, you know, taking a page out of Jared Feather's book, the step mill is fucking insane because if you want to present a catabolic stimulus to your quads, I mean, look no further, right? And your glutes, why not? Um, it's just so fucking intense for how many calories it burns. So spreading out that intensity as low intensity as possible, using fewer of the faster fibers as possible, causing a little joint stress as possible, that's the one you want for cardio. So the ideal is neat. Um, and uh, for example, Jared Feather's client, uh, Marvin Physique from Hong Kong, the, the leanest man in the world or whatever last year, um, he does zero cardio his whole prep because he's a personal trainer in his own business and he runs around Hong Kong all the fucking time. Jared clocked him at multiple days of 30,000 steps a day. Wow. And he's also yeah, just a very cool. fidgety person. Like if you ever hang out with him, he's like, oh, does that all the time. So he did zero cardio and ate 500 grams of carbs uh, regularly through his prep, but it just burned right through all that shit. So super, that's the best way to do it for sure. And if you're going to do cardio formally, the ellipticals, uh, the, uh, um, you know, weight, uh, incline uh, walking and stuff like that, that's really good. And everything that's harder and more acute from there is incrementally worse and worse. Yeah, I can 
definitely kind of say towards the cycling particularly I can remember my last prep I tried just to change it up switch it up I was yeah. just bored of using the elliptical and it's horrendous the amount of calories you burn and the quad but you just get a huge pump in your quad and it's just like yeah now I can't and really you, cycle you look at the, yeah you look at the calories and it's like 20 calories yeah. like, are you fucking kidding me I've been out here for 20 minutes <laughs> And then it's interesting because I guess this is one of those old kind of, I guess it's a bit of a old bro approach with the the stepper. And that seems to be a huge thing that a lot of kind of them have always stood by. And I think still people use it today. And it's kind of, the, the question is when you ask the question of kind of why it's, there doesn't seem to be a good answer. Like you said, there's definitely There is a good answer, to. but it's not the best answer. A good answer is it burns a lot of calories. Oh right. my God. Uh, it also gives you a, you have to keep going on it. Otherwise you fall off. So you just got to keep going. Um, and it's relatively fun. It's challenging, right? Like, yeah. uh, it feels like you're really accomplishing something. Incline walking is like, where the fuck am I walking to nowhere? This dumbass gym staring at the same person doing lateral raises wrong for 40 minutes. Uh, and then the elliptical is just, I don't know. I like the elliptical, but it's kind of lame. Like it's kind of weird. Um, and then, uh, you know, the step mill is tried and true, but it has too high of a fatigue cost and there are better ways of doing things. Um, just to remind everyone sort of the philosophical underpinnings of copying elite bodybuilders, you don't want to copy what elite bodybuilders are doing now thoughtlessly because they might all stop doing it and you're left with a, like a, holding a piece of shit in your hand. You know, Arnold and those guys used to drink beer leading up to shows. They used to eat a ton of food and tons of high fat food. They used to eat whole eggs and red meat all the time. And, uh, you know, you could try doing that and get pretty good success, but none of the elite guys do that anymore. Uh, they eat, you know, chicken and rice and stay super lean and time out their meals and all this other stuff. And you don't want to be the person that in the 60s did what Arnold did and now it's just hitting himself in the face because you could have been doing what the best do now. It is possible to be ahead of the curve um, and then the rest of the best catch up to you. You know, it would be, it would be, you know, for all the people that give men shit for high frequency training, which him and I disagree on a little bit on the margins. Can you imagine if 10 or 20 years from now, most pros switch to a rational style of high frequency training and they were the biggest ever and, and, and how ridiculous these people making fun of men now would sound like, Oh, but you just train natties and you're natty. So you're small. Like, looks like you're eating your own shit. Dumb asshole. Like maybe you should have thought instead of just copying big people, copying big people has value, but there are better ways of doing things that they will discover soon and you'll feel like a left out idiot who's just basically, uh, you know, cock riding for lack of a better term. Like it's, oh, Phil Heath does that. Like, man, like if only you could be in the same room as Phil Heath. Imagine touching him. Imagine like pulling up real close. Maybe you could be him, you know, like fuck out of my face with that shit. Like do what's logical and what the best, best guys do is often logical, but not always. It's difficult, I guess, because a lot of the, at least the education and the science is slowly rising through. And so I guess the cream of the crop is still those with just the elite genetics. And it's as it's getting more and more competitive, maybe uh, the guys with the elite genetics who are doing and using the evidence and being a bit smarter about things, and then everyone else will be forced to it. Maybe it's just take, it's just going to take a few years for it all sure. to show sure. itself yeah maybe longer so like i can think of two uh, instances where something that used to be dogma in the 2000s and the 90s especially in the late the 2000s is going out the window for range of motion and partials i can think of two coaches off the back of my hand um the folks at oxygen gym in kuwait and uh, a very successful coach in the pro ranks uh, named matt jansen um matt jansen i've seen him work with people uh, where he takes very high-level bodybuilders who are training in a very, let's say, interesting fashion, very huge weights and partial reps, 
and humbles the shit out of him and making them do full range of motion, which he does in his own training for a large part. And all of a sudden, these guys are not lifting the kind of weights you thought they did, and they're getting bigger and bigger and leaner and leaner. And all of a sudden, you know, if you're still the nut rider who's like, yeah, well, Ronnie didn't do full range, you shut up. Now you have to deal with the fact that Big Ramey does full range. How the fuck you going answer that? Like, you know, and Matt Jansen has a whole stable of athletes that are doing full range of motion, and they're bigger than you, they're bigger oh. than me, they're bigger than everybody. And it's like, do you really want nut riding to be the only thing you base your opinions on? Like, probably not. So give it some thought. Nice. And actually, a related question, because we kind of, you touched on length of contest prep a little bit, or length of the diet, at least, and how maybe you just need more time, you don't want to rush that. Do you have, I know, uh, like RP have general recommendations in like average diet lengths in terms of losing 10% of your body weight, and maybe no more than that, and going for maybe up to like, I guess, 16 weeks or something along those lines before taking a break, and then maybe going again. Do you have uh, different guidelines or thoughts on contest prep length for like natural bodybuilders? I know it's become, at least it was always wheeled or not natural, natural or not like enhanced both. Uh, but it was always like a 12 or like, I guess the, the rule was like a 12 week prep. Whereas now like longer preps, like even, I don't know, six months plus uh, for sure has become something some people have been kind of doing. Is there kind of if you found a length that you're thinking, I don't know, is there something that's too long? And then still, I guess that, like you've said, there's definitely something that's too short. Yeah, there's definitely too long. The psychological aspect really starts to bubble up and the metabolic downregulation really starts to bubble up if it's too long. You should, uh, I'd really recommend Jared Feather to get on here and answer some of these questions. He's much more in the know on this. Thing. You have to convince him to get on. <laughs> oh, okay. he's been he's been resisting, hasn't he? Yeah. Just, just a little bit. No, he has imposter I, I always poke him to see if he'll come on. He's like, yeah, maybe uh, at some point. <laughs> he, yeah, he's, We've uh, called him he's, out now. He doesn't think he knows what he's talking about, so it's, he's really wrong about that. Um, so basically, I think that if you diet for less than... 12 weeks for a contest, you had better be real lean when you start. And if you need more than uh, 16 to 20 weeks, you had better do a two-phase diet. So I would say 12 to 16 weeks would be what I'd like to see as the last phase of a contest prep, taking you from lean off-season to the show, uh, 12 to 16 weeks. And then much longer than 16 is totally fine, but that's the current phases. Um, you know, with diet breaks for several weeks if not several months on end between those phases so cool. that's I would say. this is kind of comes in line with a question that did come through uh who was it someone uh joseph kaufman asked what advice training advice oh okay actually he said what training advice would mike give to steve for his upcoming contest prep that was i thought it was just general advice but um i'd already mapped out my kind of timeline to my shows which are about august and i'm doing a diet before kind of the diet sure. Sure. an extended maintenance phase and then i've got about a 20 week at most a period of time where i'm dieting down into some shows and i consulted with jared over it as well so um i've already had yeah. that chat with the, the the guy so um i don't know if there's any specific training advice you would give for someone i don't think there's anything specific to me that you would give me but maybe there is uh for a contest Steve, i hate to burst your rubble, but i'm not <laughs> qualified to give you training advice anymore man you know the stuff back to front i was <laughs> qualified to send you clients um, you know, you have reached a level of your development where you're intellectually at a high level and also you know your body so well that I would only be fucking things up if I gave you any advice. 
Um, so all I can give you is basic principles and things that have worked for me, which you already know all that shit anyway, and then you make your own plan. So um, I think that whatever you've been doing now, like you've seemed to be on this like multi-year groove of just baller training that just works for you. Um, I would say keep doing that. Keep training twice a day and keep having the high meat. Honestly, man, like we talked about off air, if you keep training twice a day, if you keep having high meat, if you take your time slowly with a diet and you keep in a lot of food for 400 grams, 500 grams of carbs, you're going to find yourself with striated glutes in like three months. And you're going to be like, okay, I guess there's just more from here. Uh, and that's it, man. Just keep the process rolling. Keep the train rolling slowly, but steadily. And there's, uh, that's it. My best advice to you would be to change nothing major because everything you're doing seems to really have clicked. I mean, unless you disagree with that. No, I, I appreciate it. And uh, no, it's that's why I had a chat with Pascal recently and how I was kind of nervous because I don't know if you keep up to date with like the kind of bodybuilding scene in the UK, but it's just, it's Zero. ridiculous. The the striated glutes upon striated glutes, kind sure. of like Marvin, but there's like several guys yeah. getting to that level and to be competitive and to be able to go to like worlds and become pro, like you have to get, that level of conditioning and so, certainly for me with my structure so it's that's what i want i got lean last time but i think i probably have a little bit more leanness to get and uh, hopefully sure. with five pounds or something i don't know maybe more size so yeah it'll be exciting for sure yeah i agree i can't wait <laughs> so uh, actually andrew also had a, a second point to that question which was basically whether or not you've updated your views on refeed days during a contest prep or during a diet phase in general or if yeah what he was like, do you think they're effective in cutting or what's no. your approach? No, I'd rather have someone eat more food throughout the week than eat a lot in one day. I still have no idea what their lot in one day is supposed to accomplish. Um, Jesus, it's probably been 15 years since Lyle McDonald illustrated quite well that the increases in, uh, the, the increases in the pertinent gut and satiety hormones and metabolic hormones and the decreases in the pertinent other ones only last about as long as when you're eating, digesting, and absorbing that carbohydrate. And as soon as that's gone, you have almost no residual effect. And the residual effects last a little longer if you take a week away, and the residual effects and actually essentially pathway-altering effects last a lot if you take one or two months away from hypocaloric dieting. But a day at maintenance or even a day at higher than maintenance, gee, you know, other than giving you some interesting psychology to deal with when you get nervous for the day, your body weight's going to be altered a lot, you're excited for the day, when you're eating food, you have very disordered patterns sometimes of thinking, like, this day is going to be so fun, and then as the fun sort of washes away, uh, as the food um, is consumed, the amount of future fun you see yourself having declines, and you're, you start to become sad, and then you have to switch back to your old normal habits and foods the next day, and it's something that's a very rough transition from eating 600 grams of carbs to 200 um, so I just, I'm not sure what those days are supposed to accomplish and I have never heard it articulated super well. Um, if you're interested in a, a really great discussion on that is a podcast with Menno Henselmans and Eric Helms, uh, that, uh, I forgot who did that interview. Um, was it Jacob JPS? I think it was JPS maybe, uh, maybe it was Danny Lennon. Uh, okay. but yeah, it's probably JPS. And, uh, that debate was really cool because, you know, Eric is the sort of leading light in uh, advocating for refeeds, though I don't believe mm. Eric advocates for daily refeeds. Um, he was advocating for weekly refeeds. And uh, Manuel made some excellent points about, like, why not just 
diet for a shorter time, a little bit harder, and then take a huge diet break that is essentially a phase and go back to massing or maintaining and then really let everything settle and then hit it again. And that's been my philosophy for a while now, not because I'm particularly attached to it, but because I just, I don't see logically or experientially how, how the other side makes a ton of sense on that. And, and uh, you know, Eric is uh, not defending these diet breaks to a VT. He's a very nuanced position of sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. But I got the sense in the interview that Menno made some excellent, excellent points that not, not against Eric's points, just uh, in, on another direction altogether, that left me thinking, gee, even I think I've been cutting refeeds too much slack. Because, <laughs> you know, Meadow's meticulous, and he'll get in there and say, there's no evidence for this. And you're like, well, me, you look it up, and you're like, oh, shit, there is no evidence for this. Um, and then it might, might not even make sense um, on face value. But nothing I can say, I think, should steer people away from experimenting with their own diets. I think that if you want to refeed day, just to try it on a diet. Try two days at high carbs and the rest at lower. And then try a diet where all the days are sort of the carbs are modulated towards activity. Or maybe there's half a week of slightly higher eating, half a week of slightly lower eating, which I think works a lot better than just a day here and there. And then see how it feels and uh, the compare the two. And I think as your calories fall more and more, the difference between those two from a psychological, from a weight management perspective start to really become obvious and then you're like man fuck this whole like you essentially think to yourself i've been eating 200 grams of carbs for the last three days per day which is fucking terrible just to eat 600 grams of carbs today well i could have had 300 grams of carbs for the last three days and today i would have gotten used to it and something eric helms talks about a lot of his uh discussions at least uh when he's in uh seminars is the establishment of very rigid, uh, very comfortable patterns of behavior of similar foods, go-to meals that you just, this is what I do every day. I don't have to plan 50 meals. I don't have to try to shove a bunch of macros into my schedule and try to see if I how many low-fat potato chips I can eat. You just eat the same healthy basic foods all the time and all of a sudden you're really lean. And uh, 300 every day, maybe 350 some days, 250 some days, uh, uh, you know, it works a lot better than 200 for three days straight and then 600 for one day. Because you have to ask the question of, what is it am I getting out of this one day of 600 on a physiological level that is so good? And then the answer is not much. And I go, what is the cost of not eating 300 grams of carbs to all those other three days of training? Definitely like worse training, right? Nobody's going to argue training is as good with 300 grams of carbs as it was 200. It's just, it's, it's night and day, especially if you're very depleted. And then you're left with the question of, what the fuck am I doing this at all? All oh, the psychological benefits. Yeah, that's true. For some people, for some personalities, they look forward to this day. But there's also costs. Like, you can look forward to something so much, it makes you miserable the rest of the time. Uh, not to bash this in too hard, but I've made this point before. You know, world spy agencies and interrogators use that as a tactic to break people. Uh, if they just torture the fuck out of you and you're really good at your sight game, you just shut down and throw up middle fingers and you're ready to die for your country. You don't give a fuck. They torture you a little bit and then sort of give you a warm couch to sleep on for a couple of hours. They give you a sandwich or a hot meal. If you just give them anything at all, just even if you change your facial expressions when asking the right questions, uh, then you start to automatically become incentivized so in a Pavlovian way to those things that will break you sooner or later. Uh, if there is a light, you will fly to the light. If there's no, if it's just darkness, then you've got nowhere to go. You just get used to it. So in contest prep, if someone's like, look, for the next eight weeks, there are no cheat meals. There are no refeeds. Are you in? You're like, fuck it, whatever. And after four weeks, you don't even remember what food tastes like, for the love of God. You don't care. But if every week you have these feasts of low-fat potato chips, at the end of the week, you feel like you're just fiending for it again. And it's not a healthy balance for me. 
And actually, it's interesting. I wonder if um, I'm guessing uh, my guess here is when people I've just heard anecdotally and I've experienced it myself, when you have this refeed, the following days, hunger's worse. And I, I oh, expect that's psychological or is there physiological? I, I don't know if it's physiological. I suspect it's for sure psychological. It may also be physiological. Um, I think the cravings specifically are worse, which is cravings are a psychological phenomenon, not a mm. physiological one for the most part. Um, you got used to eating these unbelievably tasty foods. You're so depleted and so hungry that it just wet your appetite. Um, there is an addiction-like behavior. It's not to say that it's addiction formally to food and to tasty food. We know this from the food palatability research. When you're dieted down, the addiction-like behaviors are amplified. It's like asking an alcoholic, do you feel like having a drink? A former alcoholic, right, who's in recovery. They're like, no, I haven't had a drink in years. I don't care. You give them a night of drinking, the next day they're going to want to drink all fucking day because that's how it works. You give someone a taste, essentially an appetizer, they want more. Stop giving yourself appetizers and just diet, and all of a sudden you won't even care about food much. And when you finish your prep, you'll be in a much better place psychologically. Um, I did a my whole first bodybuilding prep, prep was I did a, every four, every five days I would do a cheat meal, um, and it was fucking terrible. <laughs> I hated it. And then when I didn't do a cheat meal, it was the easiest cut I've ever done. I guess the only other argument, and I don't know what your thoughts are to this, Mike, is um, using kind of the refeeds and maybe back-to-back refeed days for like peaking assessment. Um, I guess That's that cool. maybe has some applications. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah I was I was just thinking because I, I think uh, 3DMJ as a whole, Eric, are more so pro using multiple day refeeding, maybe like three days or two days. That makes a lot more sense yeah during a week and i think meno was more on the uh, obviously on the side of not really use utilizing them particularly sure um and i think uh cliff wilson is a bit of a fan of them so i was one in my head i was thinking maybe we can get a, a round table going of a discussion between all of you at some point that might be something yeah cool. you can leave me out of that and just do cliff wilson <laughs> eric and meno as i'm not get jared in that <laughs> put him in the deep end right with all those guys so sure sure uh, so the next question, this is kind of, I, I thought, related to some of the stuff we've been talking about is from Roberto Ricardiella. And he asked, uh, can Mike discuss in detail, as I've always heard those argue against it, that given someone is of equal body weight, let's say one person runs four miles while the other person walks four miles, will the calorie burn be equal? Uh, yeah. So the calorie burn will be slightly higher for the person who's running four miles for two distinct reasons. Reason one is that running is biomechanically less efficient than walking. So any distance you cover running costs you more calories per distance. The second reason is because running is relatively disruptive in various ways because it's higher intensity it costs you excess post-exercise oxygen consumption, which mildly elevates your calories for the next several hours and will result in more calories burned. So the running absolutely uh, will burn just a few more calories. If you decide to sprint uh, that entire distance of four miles and repeats, you will burn way more calories. And the more pertinent question to ask is at what fatigue cost? Um, you know, fatigue per calorie, if that's what you want. Fatigue per calorie, or sprinting is as high as it gets uh, versus maybe frog hopping <laughs> and plyo push-ups. But uh, fatigue per calorie for walking, um, if it's up to about a 50-minute walk, could be negative in the sense that you actually drop fatigue doing that. Mm. 
especially the psychological fatigue, which is, uh, definitely helps. Um, but uh, even for a very long duration walking, the fatigue per calorie is pretty fucking good. So, but yeah, you would you would actually burn uh, slightly more calories running, which is not to say that it's a better idea when you need to burn more calories because just walking more is by far the best way to do that. Cool. Yeah, sorry, I realize it was quite uh to, to, for you to break that down was good because <laughs> that was something to just throw at you and it's like you could have probably done with reading that beforehand but yeah, yeah no no worries that, that's <laughs> yeah you got this old phd for some reason right <laughs> it's they the taught us something in school <laughs> so uh, the next question is actually from pascal um, because we were talking on the improvement season today and this was he said this is a question he's always wanted to ask you and eric and forgets every time so i remembered today for him and he said okay. uh, that he had found with himself because he's previously been quite overweight and with some of his more over clients who have been overweight beforehand that when he goes into a gaining phase he gains lots of weight very quickly and when he goes into a cutting phase lots of weight comes off very quickly and obviously water weight people get that normally but he finds it's more uh pertinent or a, a, a bigger response with people who have been overweight previously and I wondered if there was anything to that if that's something you'd seen as well or he kind of theorized whether there was any refilling of fat cells or water associated with that there's definitely some of that and it's not just the fat cells you leave a lot of loose skin around so I think your extracellular fluid compartment gets bigger when you have more loose skin and you can just fill it up with fluid um I know a couple of people, one client, Jared, specifically coached that uh, was Dexed at, I think, 7% body fat. And he looked like he was maybe 15, maybe 16%. And he had been very overweight before. And then Jared uh, instructed him through a combination of him and Broderick, I believe, to take uh, some kind of combination of um, diuretics. And he lost another... 10, 10 or 15 pounds over the course of several days, which by the way is a lot with diuretics, not high dosages either. And he looked shredded. Um, so it was like, you know, you know, it's fat when you take a bunch of diuretics, nothing happens and you're still just as fat. And like, no, that was not water, you know, pee away your fat. So it would with him, it was a ton of body water and he had been uh, overweight before. For me, when I diet and I'm under high stress, like I have like love handles from back when I was really fat, they just stay filled with water and it's really hard to see much progress because it just uh, my body water goes everywhere that my fat used to be. Interesting. Um, so that's definitely a thing, absolutely. Cool, awesome. So the next question is from uh, Faraz Back, uh, and he has said, is there anything to cutting in summer and bulking in winter in terms of kind of, I guess, the seasons and whether there's any kind of, I guess it's, I don't know if it's related to the circadian kind of uh, rhythms and this sort of thing. Uh, is there any research that you're aware of looking into that? Is there anything to that? So if we were to speculate on circadian rhythms, we'd have to do some more speculation than just the baseline. So uh, we'll do that in a bit. Let me say what there is to that. When humans are exposed to colder weather, they generally tend to eat more and they move less, um, which is both good for massing. When people are exposed to hotter temperatures, they generally move more and they eat less, which is good. So those are the good things. In addition, it's good to be lean in the summer and nobody gives a shit lean you are in the winter. The downside is that in the summer, 
you have the most fun in the summer when you're already lean and you get to eat fun foods and drink drinks with your friends on boats and stuff. If you're dieting through the summer, then you don't get to do any of that. Uh, and then by the time fall comes, you're at your leanest. And again, nobody gives a shit then. Um, so there's a downside for that. In addition to that, a lot of the winter months are not celebratory months. There's no, you know, it's like, what are the major holidays between Christmas and the summer? There really are none, right? Bank holidays here and there. But like, you can really grind and maybe you go somewhere for the spring. You know, if you're in the UK, you take off and go to, to the south of France in May or something. Like, nobody's going to the south of France in January, right? It's not even that warm in the south of France in January. So, you know, if you're cutting for May, you know, the January, February, March period, that's a really good time to cut. You know, it's not the greatest time to mass. I can understand massing through, you know, you guys don't have that in the UK, but you know, Thanksgiving holiday in the US is a big time to eat food, but Christmas and just the holidays in general are just full of good food. Mm. So the winter holiday is a great time for massing, shitty time for cutting. But then, you know, when January, mid-January rolls around, it's a great time for cutting too. And another cool thing is like if you cut February, March, April, as you get leaner, the air gets warmer outside and it makes it easier. It's awful. Cutting into winter is terrible. Like if, you, if you're the leanest ever in December, you're like, I swear to God, I'm just going to fucking die from the cold. You're going to find me in my apartment, shriveled up, dead, blue. Because uh, you finally, the man had lost all his body fat and died in his, in his flat, right? So there's those are definitely some things to consider. Um, so... It's not as simple as winter versus summer. It's sort of pre-winter and pre-summer and things like that. Uh, the circadian rhythm thing, uh, uh, the circannual rhythm, I guess you could say, uh, is a bit of a contentious topic. Number one, there's not really much uh, formal evidence to support it. Well, that's not a terrible problem as we could hypothesize evolutionarily. Here's where things start to fall apart. It can be surmised that uh, people of uh, European and Northern European ancestry could have mechanisms like this, although because they would be relatively newer evolutionarily, probably not super powerful, making you know, weight gain better for the winter and fat loss better for the summer. Um, uh, another problem with, uh, so, so, so that, for people of East and Northern Asian ancestry, you can hypothesize that. For people of African ancestry, I mean, I mean this when I say that winter doesn't fucking exist in Africa. It doesn't fucking exist in South America for the most part, unless you're talking about very southern latitudes. It sure as fuck doesn't in India. I mean, I'm going to India in a couple of weeks here with Menno and Jared and the whole crew, and it's going to be fucking 35 degrees uh, Celsius, by the way, in the fucking in the beginning of December, right? So if you're, you know, of, of South Asian, which is to say Indian or Sri Lankan, et cetera, ancestry, there's no fucking way you have adapted to winter because winter doesn't fucking exist, right? Like someone from Vietnam is going to have a real hard time demonstrating adaptations for circadian or circannual rhythms because it's just a rainy season and the dry season. That's it, right? So, so all of a sudden, there's you have to attend to racial diversity with that, which is interesting. There's potential there for that. Here's another interesting idea. Um, during the winter, food availability is low. Okay. So one could say massing could be easier because your body doesn't burn calories as much. It constrains them. Got it. Interesting hypothesis. During the summer, food availability is high. So maybe your appetite is higher and your propensity to gain fat is higher because that's when you hamster up and gain fat from a, a pre-industrial evolutionary perspective. So on the one hand, yes, it can be understood that winter is the best time to gain weight because you're more apt to be less active and maybe your fat holds on to itself better. Um, but then again, the summer is also a good time to gain weight. 
because you're, you know, there's tons of food around, especially like the late summer, early fall is when there's the most food and typical you know, northern human environments. And that's when you're trying to get as fast as fucking possible. And your body is, you know, for suspecting evolution had a role to play in the you know, winter being easier to bulk. Summer should also be easier. There may be some kind of logic, but maybe the spring is the time that it's the fat loss is easiest. But even then, I'll put you this way, man, based on our human ancestral environments, there's really nothing that rewards fat loss. <laughs> okay. It's only just, it's all when do we get fat and how, like, in the winter, you get you stay fat by not get, losing any weight. In the summer, you get fat by eating as much as possible. You know what I mean? So, mm. um, I think uh, the the cir, you know circannual whatever uh, cycles are very very speculative and run into some interesting theoretical problems if you think about them a little more deeply. So I would sort of leave those aside and say you should diet when your schedule is most convenient for you and when you typically feel the least hungry and the most active, which is so. A lot of times, the springtime is a great time to diet, and then the fall is a great time to gain weight, and in between, there's kind of some nuance and maybe time for maintenance phases. So, like, a maintenance phase during the holidays sounds super great, or early to January or something, because you don't want to be dieting January's too fucking cold. Then, you know, February, March, et cetera, hits you may be able to diet a lot, and then, um, you know, uh, gaining phase, or sorry, so, you know, they get into the summer, and there's a good chance for maintenance phase in the summer, because you want to maintain your lean physique and have fun with friends in July. And then once August starts to come to a close, you might be able to start massing uh, again because the winter is starting to cool down a little bit. All the fall flavors are coming out, and then you mass all the way to the holidays. And then January, you're sort of looking for process. And that's a way to do it, but it doesn't, you know, so much more individual variation and really convenience and preference is what it comes down to the most. That uh, kind of the, what you outlined there is like a perfect like contest prep starting around January coming into like the August time. Uh, so it's That's funny it. that that happened. Um, what was I going to say? I was. It's in, I, only as I've got more interested into sleep and kind of um, light cycles and being aware of kind of blue light and melatonin and how that in, can impact you. I've noticed how I'm just generally feeling more tired. Well, this could be related to other things as well, but I find in the winter, I'm definitely kind of, I get up later or I want to get up later, go to bed earlier. Do you find that that happens to you as well? Not to me personally, but that's okay. not to say it doesn't even happen to most people. Um, I'm so much a stickler for my own routine that my own routine occurs no matter what's happening, to be completely honest. Um, but I'm also maybe not super perceptive about all those things in myself. Um, and I've got so much else going on, you know, special sports supplements make all this shit go crazy that I don't even know if I can keep track of what my body naturally wants to do. <laughs> uh, so, and there's so much variability too, like, you know, in the summer, maybe I'm more active, a social life is greater, so maybe I don't want to sleep for that reason. And in the winter, maybe that's calmed down, so I want to sleep more, who knows? But for me, I have I can't tell you about good faith that I've experienced those, but uh, I, they seem interesting and it seems likely that a lot of people experience that. And I think to be honest, you could artificially can kind of construct if you had blackout blinds, the summer, the early morning light doesn't actually impact you anyway. If you have loads of bright lights, even like a seasonal affective disorder lamp, whatever it might be, you can construct yeah. that to be artificial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know. I, I can... Go ahead. I was just going to say like you go into a supermarket like you guys in the states particularly have like 24 hour supermarkets it's the brightest thing in the world like you go in there and you're just wide awake so um, it's yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what I don't have seasonal affective disorder my sister and I are both born in Moscow Russia and our favorite weather some of our favorite weather is uh, a cold cloudy rainy day London uh, there's <laughs> Yeah, no, I love London. Are you kidding me? <laughs> London is like one of my spirit homes. Um, 
there's something about it being cold and rainy and cloudy outside that makes for the calmest sort of thinking and the best intellectual work. Um, and it never makes me sad. I don't know why. Uh, I also have this weird thing, might as well tell this story. When I was a kid, I had really bad attention deficit disorder, so I did really poorly at school. And it was very poorly at school. I hated school, and every now and again, I would lie to my parents and tell them I'm sick, uh, so they would keep me at home so I didn't have to go to school. And, um, you know, it was middle of the day, and usually in, the, in school, you don't get to see outside much because you're in the classroom learning. And I was in the middle of the day, and I could see from my bedroom or from the living room, I could see, you know, all the daylight, and everything was alive and fresh. And um, that uh, sensation of, of perception of everything being great outdoors in the middle of the day on a sunny day uh, was mixed with my own unbelievable guilt and shame for what I was doing and feeling of inadequacy. So nowadays, like at 2 p.m. in the middle of the day, I don't like to do anything except for sit and work. Because if I'm like outside having fun, I just hate it. I'm like, I'm fucking, I'm a fraud. Like I lied to my parents about being sick. So it, it's, a, it's an emotion that never left me my entire life. I, uh, it's super strange, right? It doesn't make any goddamn sense at all. This I'm 35 years old, but it never left. So uh, when people say like, uh, there's, for example, when I was a professor, students would say like, oh my God, can we have class outside today? It's so beautiful. I wanted to be like, absolutely not. Uh, no, I, I'm not going outside in the middle of the day. I go from the fucking classroom to my office where I type into Microsoft Excel. That's what I want to be doing in the middle of the day. I don't want to see the outdoors, which is a crazy fucking answer. But on a serious note, class outside is the stupidest fucking idea. <laughs> what are you going to do? Stare at other shit? By definition, you're not learning what you're supposed to be learning. Fuck out of my face with that. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. And actually, this is it's kind of strangely become related to the next question from Cameron uh, Meachin. And he said, uh, you have a great video on advanced nutritional strategies. And you talked about when it might be a smart or an option to have some protein in the middle of the night. Um, and he would like to hear some kind of elaborate on it or qualify it. He kind of discussed how um, maybe rather than kind of having the protein feeding, you should be trying to kind of adjust whatever's going on to make sure that you're not waking up in the night rather than kind of using that as an opportunity to have the protein feed protein feeding as in it might be a sleep quality issue and that needs to be kind of outlined and he also talked about um how at night apparently uh, digestion isn't as good um so that the whey protein might not be doing what you want it to be doing or the the protein feeding mm. i don't know what that means digestion isn't as good i think um, it, he mentioned kind of the I think it was related to circadian rhythms and how at night it's digestion isn't as good. He probably, he would need to clarify it a little bit better than sure. for me. I'm not cynical about that claim. I'm just skeptical about it. Exactly what not good means. I do understand there's a trade-off between sleep quality and digestion. So um, that's definitely a thing. I don't think, and I've, I've mostly qualified these statements whenever I said them, maybe I didn't at some point, I don't think you should be waking up on purpose in the middle of the night to have a protein shake. I think that if you wake up anyway to go pee, you should have a protein shake. There's only so much you can do to not wake up to pee in the middle of the night. My bladder just doesn't let me do that. I wake up to pee at least once in the middle of the night, usually two or three times. And that interferes with my sleep quality zero because as soon as I go back to bed, I fall right the fuck back asleep. And when I wake up, I can time it to every hour and a half or three hours, which is exactly in the 90 minute uh, sleep cycles. I could never wake up in the middle of a sleep cycle to go pee. Something has to wake me up for that. And that's absolutely just almost never happens. 
So if you wake up to pee anyway, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you're having trouble massing and getting in enough protein, leaving a small meal with lots of protein that's easy to digest, shake uh, and slamming it might be an option. Is it the best option? Maybe not. Um, is there something to be said for letting the digestive system rest, so to speak, and reset all of its hormones and stuff? Maybe. Brother Chava seems to be uh, some proponent of that sort of lay the fuck off the system for a while kind of thinking. I cannot argue with that. Uh, he may very well be completely correct. But uh, it may be an option worth exploring, especially if someone's like, I can't eat anymore in the middle of the mm -hmm. day. But I get hungry in the middle of the night. And there uh, cool. may be a solution to that. I apologize if you could hear, I don't know if you can hear Ada in the background at all. Hear she's, anything. <laughs> she's moaning. <laughs> so uh, I was trying to get her to be quiet. Can you um, pick her up and put her on the screen or not? <laughs> I could. I don't know how, how easy it would. Um, she would come and bother me, but I, I'll, I'll how leave her How big is now. the dog? Oh, she's a, it's a Patterdale uh, cross with a Jack Russell. So it's a terrier. It's tiny. It could, Aww. she could fit like on my lap quite easily. <laughs> you have to meet her when you uh, come to London next year. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That would, I would be honored. And um, I think probably we've been talking for about an hour. So it's probably a good point to close it. So um, I don't know if you've got anything. I know you just said you're in India. So I don't know if that's, uh, that might be happening too soon to inform people about it, but it's um, happening that's in exciting. two weeks. Okay. Um, that December might be. First or second in Goa, India. This might be coming out very close to that. So it might cool. be a bit late notice, but that's exciting. No, Have you got anything else before the end of the year or early next year? No, thank God. Because um, <laughs> I've been, this past year, I traveled more than any other year in my life combined, maybe. It took, wow. I don't want to say it took a toll, but it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. So. Nothing for a while. Nothing really planned in January either. Um, so we'll see. But uh, Yahoo. And you have, I guess everyone's asking you about the, uh, you've been dropping lots of teasers and quotes from your scientific principles of hypertrophy yeah. training. So uh, have you got any closer to a date that that might be ready next year? I know uh, James is giving you a hard time telling you uh, everything that's wrong about it. <laughs> sure. So uh, I think maybe spring of next year. is Amazing. Likely. Cool. Awesome. So thank you so much, Mike, for coming on and covering everyone's questions. And as always, thank you everyone for your questions and we will see you soon. Peace.